Luke 15, verses 1 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young man gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered all his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for another day where we can gather and worship where we can open up your word and expect that you're going to speak to us. God, I pray for each person here that you would open their minds and their hearts as to what you want to say to them through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke has been called the Gospel within the Gospel. And it shows us the purpose of why Jesus came and reveals God's heart for the lost. The way Luke recorded this for us within this chapter is that he's given us these parables. And so we'll take a look at two and a half of them this morning because we're not going to finish the prodigal son parable. We're going to wrap that up next week. So we'll just venture into chapter 15 up to verse 24. And before we do this, I think we have to take a look back to verse 35 in chapter 14 just so that it kind of sets the tone for us as to what we're going to be moving into here in chapter 15. And it reads this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So in other words, listen up, right? Listen up. This is what Jesus said right before we enter into our text this morning. Listen up. So here, verses 1 and 2, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes, 
grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We find the the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus and the religious know-it-alls grumbled about what Jesus had to say, which is very much like church today, isn't it? The ones who know that they need to hear Jesus, they receive that hope, while the ones who think that they know it all, they grumble. It's not that different. Now keep these two verses in mind as we continue because these verses are really significant precursors to the parables that are following. So picture in your head the sinners that are near to Jesus. That they paid attention to what Jesus had to say. That they were eager to hear what Jesus had to say. And then you have these self-righteous, know-it-all folks who gave Jesus a really hard time. So just put that picture in your head. These religious know-it-alls are people that attended church regularly. Right, the ones who have been in church in a long time and, and they've heard they've heard it all. The ones who have read the books and they, they look like they have it all together because they know how to act and perform on the outside, but on the inside they're just like anybody else who's a sinner. And so they're the ones grumbling instead of listening to what Jesus had to say to them. Now the word grumbling is actually a, a really good English translation from the original Greek word because what Luke is getting across in his writing is that these religious people were really good at murmuring. You know, when people complain under their breath, you know, you can't hear what they're saying. You just hear like, this is kind of that stuff. And you just kind of hear this kind of hum. And, you know, I see it all the time out there in the crowd. Yes, I see you. I do. I see you. Just thought I'd let you know. One of the things... Luke was able to record for us among the complaining hum was this. That he heard this out of the... He heard this. The man receives sinners and eats with them. He, he was able to pick that out. And so for us, it's like, yeah, duh, or no duh. I don't know which one is the right interpretation. Jesus already told them in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So yeah, yeah, he's going to receive them and he's going to eat with them. He's going to hang out with them. He's going to invest his life into their life. This statement by the Pharisees was actually a pretty deep dig at Jesus. They're, They're trying to get something. It's not a little light put down like, you ugly. This put down was like a, yo mama put down, right? This like... Your mama's so, and you have to say it like that too, otherwise it doesn't work. Your mama's so stupid. She tried to put her M&Ms in alphabetical order. It was like a yo mama thing, right? This was meant to condemn. This was meant to dig deep and then to judge. They didn't like Jesus and his purpose. They didn't like that. And what was Jesus' purpose? We've talked about this numerous times. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So these self-righteous Pharisees, you know, they're all elitists, you know. They they thought, uh, we're the only ones that know this religion thing. We we got this in the bag. And if you don't like religion like we do, you're, you're out there. You just don't got it. And the sinners who were, who were drawn to Jesus didn't keep the laws as strictly as the Pharisees. They didn't even know that stuff. And a lot of that stuff wasn't even scriptural. It was just extra scriptural. And so those people, they were labeled as the people of the land. And the Pharisees, they kind of just kind of huddled together and they stuck together because they didn't want to be defiled by the people of the land. And so they tried to stay separate from the people of the land. Like, we're going to stay here, you're going to stay there. And so they were forbidden to be guests of such a person. The Pharisee was forbidden to have them as a guest, to have any dealings with them. They wouldn't give a daughter to marry a man from the people of the land. So in their regulations was written this, When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no one to him. Take no testimony from him. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him the custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. In addition, a Pharisee must never eat with such people, nor have any business dealings if that could be avoided. So you get a better sense of what they're saying to Jesus, like he eats with them. 
Right? They're like, that, that's forbidden for us. That's a people of the land over there. And he's eating with them. But then came Jesus, right? who, who didn't let these guys get away with misrepresenting God. He, he, he spoke about the matters that all of them would understand in, in just simple and, and brilliant ways. And so he, he just kind of does this here with, with his parables. He, he uncovers this defective belief of the Pharisees so that the sinners, including the Pharisees, may discover the glorious love of God. And so he just kind of tells it in story form. It's, it's kind of non-threatening, right? When you're reading things in story form, when you're reading a book or something like that and it speaks to you, um, some, some of you get mad at the book or the author and like, oh, how can they say that? But most of the time, you take that better than somebody like directly telling you something's wrong with you. So Jesus oftentimes uses story form so people can kind of be a little bit more softened in this way. Keep in mind here that if something precious is lost... You know, your engagement ring or something like that. You know, something precious is lost. There is a great concern and a desire to find that which is lost. Right? Let's go into verses 3 through 7. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So you see the care, the effort, the responsibility Jesus has for one that is lost. And you see how Jesus' story kind of touches this emotional empathy cord. Right? People there understood this rejoicing. They understood what it feels like when you find something that's lost. But these Pharisees look to the sinner's destruction rather than their salvation. They had this saying, There will be great joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. How different is that from what Jesus said in verse 7? You see what Jesus is doing? He's flipping it on them. He's like, you got this all wrong. You got this completely wrong. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Not what you're saying. Not what you're saying. There will be great joy over one sinner who is obliterated before God. No, that's not true. And so the good shepherd in this story is like Jesus who came to seek and save the lost, who came for you, the one who was lost, and now that he is found, he loves you. He loves you, and you are worth all the trouble that he had to go through. All the pain, all the suffering, all the sacrifice that he experienced while he lived on this earth, you are well worth it. And so Jesus rejoices at finding you. As he was telling this story, he knew he would be heading toward Jerusalem. His face was towards Jerusalem to carry out this whole drama of redemption. To be the good shepherd and to save his lost sheep. And in the next story, Jesus shared the extreme care a woman would take in finding her lost coin. How finding demanded attention. It demanded a care to detail for the task at hand in order to find this coin. Let's jump into there. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? We've all been here, right? You know when you're looking for that one thing? I have to find that scarf. It's the only thing that matches this outfit. Or whatever. You have to find that one thing and so how thorough you get and how meticulous you get in, in looking for that one thing. And this is how God is. You are not accidentally found. God is working to find you. You are not here by accident. If you are sitting in here, you're not here by accident. He has been looking for you. And He's found you. You're here. You are here. Verses 9 and 10. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, he's slamming it into those 
those Pharisees, it's not what you think. God is not happy that he obliterates a sinner because of their sin, not just one. He's happy that one comes to salvation. It's different. There will be great joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God? No. You are wrong. And Jesus challenged them on this belief because they knew they would rejoice at finding a lost sheep among the 99. They knew that they felt that. They know that this is right. They knew that they would rejoice at finding one lost coin out of the ten. They knew that. They, they couldn't hide from that. How much more valuable are we to God than sheep and coins? And then he goes into this third story. Verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. So first, Jesus speaks about lost sheep, and then he speaks about a lost coin, and now he's going to speak about lost sons. A story about broken relationships between two children and their father. The broken relationship between the younger son and his father is caused by this overt and a distant rebellion in that he goes away, while the older child and his father have this broken relationship that is more covert It's kind of hidden. It's not as open, right? The younger son is like going out there partying, like doing whatever. The older son is just kind of, it's covert. You don't know what's happening inside his heart. But some rebellion is happening within him. And this is kind of the like, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer type of rebellion. This is this older son. It's in-house. He's in the house with his rebellion while the other one's just out. He's overt. He's open. This older son's kind of a little more dangerous, I find myself being like the older son. But we'll talk about that next week. Today is the younger son. And we'll take this time to look at what's going on with this boy. He's pretty open about what he wants, isn't he? And so he wants to break his ties with his dad. Verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Let's pause right there. This kid had the audacity to ask for his inheritance while his dad is still alive. Can you think about that? That's messed up. He's alive. Now think about who was listening to Jesus tell this parable, right? People who were sinners and they knew they were and they were drawn in and they were listening. And people who were religiously preoccupied and they didn't bother listening, they were just kind of grumbling, all this kind of stuff. And the Pharisees assumed that the message Jesus had to tell was for those sinners, those people of the land. It's not for us. It's for them. Because they thought they had it all together. You know, they, they had religion in the bag. But what Jesus will do in this parable is show them that they are indeed the older brother. You Pharisees, you are the older brother. And their broken relationship with God is a covert rebellion. It is a rebellion that is in-house. It's hidden with their religious activity. That you know, They go to religious gatherings. They, they talk the religious talk. They perform all the religious rituals and celebrations and have the feasts and all that kind of stuff. Does that sound at all familiar with the church? There are a lot of Christians who are just covertly in rebellion to God and it's hidden in their religious activity. You come to church. You don't cuss. You listen to sermons and you listen to Christian music and you wear Christian clothing and you go to conferences. It's just all an act. See, children rebelling against their parents is something that almost every parent and child has experienced. And as a parent, aren't the kids that are um, more sneaky, more, more freaky to you? The ones that look like an angel on the outside, but on the inside, you're like, I don't know what they are thinking. Those are the scary ones. I like the kid that is like, I know he's going to mess up. I see it. It's not a big deal. It's, it's the ones that are like, I, 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 couldn't, I, I don't know what happened. Those are the scary ones. Here we have the younger son, the one that you know he's a rebellious kid, you know he goes off, you know he parties, you know he does all this kind of stuff, and he comes to his dad and he's just up front. He's overt. He says, Dad, give me the share of the property that is coming to me because, you know, I, I need to get out of here. This place stinks. 
and he didn't want anything to do with his dad anymore. He wanted his own stuff. This isn't unusual. Right? It happens often where, where children kind of they come of age when they want to be on their own. You know, I, I'm tired of this, Dad. I don't want to be a part of the, this house anymore. I want to get out of here. I want to move out. And when a child just gets tired of being in their parents' kingdom, in their parents' domain, all the rules and the values and how things are done and what is done, and you know, that's just all getting old. And so the child just no longer likes it or no longer wants it. But what they do like is Daddy's resources. They like that. They like that. They want the benefits with nothing else attached to it. I want you to pay for my cell phone plan, but I don't want to do anything else for you. You know, give me unlimited text. They like the resources, right? But they don't necessarily like being there. And this is normal. I'm not saying this is abnormal. This is just normal stuff. And how I look forward to it having three daughters. Man, pray for me. Children moving out of their parents' home, that's normal. That's a normal thing. Actually, some people struggle with the opposite. That's worse, right? Get out! You're 50 and you're playing video games. Get out! Just saying, it's worse. Let your kids fight you on getting out and just count it a blessing. Equipping our children to live life as adults, that's the aim of every healthy parent, isn't it? That's, that's our aim as parents. I officiated a wedding yesterday. It was a cool wedding. I got to speak Shakespeare. When I first read it, I was just like, what in the world does she want me to do? And then someone else asked, can you do it in an English accent? I was like, I could do it in a fob accent. I can't do it in an English accent. Come on. Are you kidding me? I can't even read this stuff. I can't even pronounce it. And I'm doing another wedding next week. That one's an Egyptian wedding. And so if they say, can you do that in an Egyptian accent? I'd be like, I'm going to have to watch like Prince of whatever that Moses. Anyway, I'm a father of three daughters. So whenever I officiate these weddings, I think of my place as the father of the bride every time I'm doing this. And so how I'll give my daughter's hands to some Yahoo whom I probably will never feel is good enough for my daughters. I'm just being honest about that. Any dad out there, you, you know what, it is, what it's like. The good thing is I've started counseling through this right now for that day in the future. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm preparing myself for this. Actually, I'm only really concerned with my elder two daughters because my youngest daughter, woo, she's a firecracker, that kid. Let me tell you a story about her. We have a nickname for her at my house, and it's Napoleon. You know, she's small. She's savage, man. She's like, the elder two, I pray for them. I pray for them, and, you know, like, Lord, you know. The youngest one, I pray for her future husband. I'm like, Lord, protect the young man, please, you know. Anyway, as good parents, we equip our children for adulthood, right? And, And if we don't, we hurt them. We hurt them. It's, it's challenging to know when to let go and when to hold on. You let go too soon or too late, and it's not good. You hold on too much or too little, and that's not good. And each one's different. But this younger son in our parable doesn't want to leave in order to mature. This is not kind of like... I, I, I want to I wanna spread my wings like, like dad, you know, I, I need to leave in order to invest into myself to develop as a man. It's nothing noble like that. It's nothing like, dad, you know, I, I, I know you've taken care of me, but I really need to learn how to fly. Um, I'd like to start my own business, cause, so can I use that as seed money? And maybe you can coach me through this stuff or dad, I need that for my education. Can you? It's nothing noble like that. What does he tell his dad? Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. What is he really telling his dad? You're living too long. Die already. That's what he's essentially saying. The longer you're alive, the longer I have to wait here for you to die. Just die. 
I can't wait anymore. These rules living here, it's terrible. I want to get out of here. I'm tired of you intruding and interfering with my life. If you just die, but you're alive. So just give me what, what you're going to give me anyway. Give me my inheritance now. I don't have time to wait for you to die. I don't know how long you're going to live. Give me what's mine. Set me free. I don't want to be here anymore. That's what he's essentially saying. What was Jesus doing with this parable? Jesus was describing the nature of men and women, their heart towards God. This is what he's describing. Some of us are in overt rebellion like this younger son, and some of us are just in this covert rebellion under the guise of religion, but both of them are rebellion. And perhaps some of you have a combination of both. Maybe you're really messed up, and you have some of both. Right? You, you grew up in the church and, and you did all these religious things and, and at that time it was kind of more covert and maybe even rebelled in these kind of covert ways and hidden in this religious activity. But you got to a point where you were sick of it and now you don't care and now it's overt. But then you can go in and out and you're a chameleon when you enter into your parents' church when you're home. Like, oh yeah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But you're like, you're way out there when you're out in the world and you're off on your own and stuff like that. At least these boys are honest in terms of like where they stay. You know, they're not coming back and forth. The younger son's defiant rebellion was completely for himself. Right? Last week, the, the Scriptures taught about dying to yourself. Here we have a picture of someone living for themselves. They're living for themselves. They are totally self-absorbed. They thought that freedom from God's rules and authority are the way to live. Let's wrap up verse 12. And he divided his property between them. This is interesting. The father let him have his way by honoring this request, by honoring his choice. Jesus is describing how we choose to rebel against God and how God honors our decision to walk away from him. You want to do it? He'll let you do it. He's not a dictator. right? He's not going to hold you with a leash. You want to go, you can go. You don't have to stay in his house. And there are many in our world who wish God to be dead. Right? They want the benefits of what God has to offer, but they don't want to have a relationship with the giver of those benefits of life. God, we like the stuff that you give us, but we don't like you. Just go off and die. Get out of my life. Leave me alone. Now, why are people like this? Why was the younger son like this? And I think it boils down to this. They're selfish. They want to live for themselves. Verse 13, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. You notice how this plan seems to be a premeditated plan? He didn't just come up with this idea like at the spur of the moment, like, Dad, give me my stuff, and that was it. This seems like he had some things going on in his head. He knew what he was doing here. It didn't take him very long to pack up all his stuff and to move to a far-off country. I mean, doesn't that take time? This kid's planned it already. And you notice that this guy doesn't have any intention to move back. The younger son gathered all he had. When you intend to move back, you don't clear all the stuff out of your parents' house. Right? You recall this freshman year of college? Freshman year of college, you're, you're moving into the dorm and stuff like that, but you leave some stuff back at home. You're right? you, Your room, you, you leave some stuff there. You leave your bed, you leave your desk and things like that. I had some friends, though, their parents cleared all their stuff out when they were gone. Oh, what happened? You moved out. <laughs> Most of the time, when you move out, you don't move everything. You just move some of the stuff, right? You just move some of the stuff because you intend to go back. You intend to go back in Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and all these summer. You intend to go back. This guy does not intend to go back. In verse 13, there's this implied meaning in the Greek that this younger son gathered all that he had and he actually cashed it in. That's messed up. 
He didn't even want to take the belongings that were given to him. He just cashed it in. This makes sense, though, doesn't it, that he would do this? Now, some of the stuff he probably kept, like if it was actually money or, you know, gold or something, but some of the stuff you don't want to bring along with you, like um, grandma's chest or something, you know? Like, you don't want to bring that stuff. You, you, you sell it. But you, you see how audacious this is? Because some of the stuff that was given to him, family heirlooms, things of sentimental value, he doesn't care. Sold. Probably for not even what it's really worth. Things that probably can't even be replaced. Things that were meaningful to the Father are meaningless to the Son. Sold for a price for things that are priceless. What's your salvation worth? And you are just selling it away. Right? How much is that worth? See, see the lack of care his son had for the father? See, there are things money cannot buy, yet this son seemed to just sell it. You know, forget it. I just want the cash. Now, when t- people turn their back on God, it's sometimes done in this way where all is gathered. I don't want anything to do it. And what really isn't theirs is sold. And it's ironic because everything the young son had was from his father. Just like all that we have is from God. The very mind that we use to rebel against God is provided to you from God. The very community, whether it's your family or friends who provide you that emotional support, that financial support, were provided by God. The very gifts and abilities and talents that you have that give you security, that you can make it in this world because you can hold a job and you can have a conversation, you, you can have friends and all this stuff, given by God. Every provision you and I have was given to us from God. How can we claim that we are independent of God when He has provided the very breath that you just took? You, you can't. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 21-22, through 22, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The very life that you and I have was given to us for the glory of God. He didn't give it to us for us to waste it in temporary sin, to cash in on this stuff and to live a life absent of Him. He gave it to us for everlasting glory. And the younger son had this premeditated plan, but it wasn't a very good plan. I really doubt that he thought through what he was going to do with this inheritance. Right? He, he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. He, he went into this unknown territory without his father. He went alone. And he didn't know what to do with all he had. And sometimes we think that, you know, man, God, if, if you would just let me win the lottery, all my problems will be done. That I'd be done with my problems. That's what happened to this guy. This guy essentially won the lottery. But he lost it all. There's some interesting statistics about lottery winners too, by the way. The Connecticut Financial Advisors Group, they've served uh, lottery winners from 18 different states. And they said this in a news release. The reality is that 70% of all lottery winners will squander away their winnings in a few years. Few. Not even like 10. Few years. This is also the lottery mentality in professional athletes. According to the NBA Players Association, 60% of pro basketball players go broke within five years of retirement. Sports Illustrated wrote that 78%, 78% of NFL players go bankrupt in their lifetime. Multi, multi-millionaires. Gone. See, this is what wealth reveals. Wealth reveals character. It exposes all of the good and weak character traits that a person lives by. 
And when you just suddenly get something without building your character, you can kiss it goodbye. You have no wherewithal to maintain all that resource that you just received. This is like us. This is so much like us. We are given so much from God. We have won the lottery with God. He's blessed us. But we run off on our own. We, we aren't developing our character and we squander off what He's given us. You know, we squander what He's given us in sinful, reckless living. We've been given our health. We've been given our health. But if we live these sexual, immoral lives and risk our life to disease for those temporary moments, what do you think happens? What we think is, you know, sexual freedom. The church is so binding. The church is so outdated, so archaic. What you call freedom is actually bondage. Bondage to physical disease. Bondage to emotional toil. Bondage to codependency of unhealthy relationships. Really, that's freedom? That's bondage. Verses 14-16. through And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. You notice that? In verse 14, he spent everything. In verse 16, no one gave him anything. First of all, no one had anything to give because there was a severe famine. But think about it in this way also, just like in our world. There's not much the world can give. Famine or not, there's not much the world can give. And even if there is something the world can offer, it's a cruel world that offers selfishness. It's just looking for itself. It's what they have. Now, when you have plenty, you have a lot of friends. When you have nothing, where do they go? I have family that have inherited money from when... Other relatives of mine have died, and, and they had this windfall of money. And at that time, I have a relative that just went out and squandered it and partied and treated people things and did things and all this kind of stuff. It seemed like he had a ton of friends. When it ran out, you can't find a single one around him anymore. He doesn't have that entourage around him anymore. See, that's how it is for lottery winners. That's how it is with those who get this large windfall of money who haven't developed their character. They spend like there's no tomorrow and they're buying things for people and you know they're acting like the big shot and like, eh, hey, drink's on me or oh yeah, that meal over there, yeah, that's on me. And but when they're down and out, all those people that spent their money, they're they're nowhere to be found. And I'm sure this young son was thinking that he was gonna make it. I don't think anyone that wins the lottery or gets this large windfall of money thinks that they're gonna fail. He probably thought that he was going to make it. Whatever he received from his dad, he was probably feeling pretty optimistic about what he was going to do with his new wealth. right? And I think if someone came up to him when he had all this stuff, when he cashed in everything, and and they said, you know what? You need to work on your character because you're going to lose everything. He probably just laughed at him. Get out of here. Something really good happened to him, though. Something really, really good happened to him. And it happened on a pig field. See, that pig field was actually his field of dreams there, right? And it wasn't a field of pigs. But verse 14, And he began to be in need. That is such a beautiful thing. He learned that he needed. That is an incredible lesson to learn. To learn that you need Some people, they like to just go about life all themselves and they're like, I'm going to get through it myself. I'm going to get through it myself. I don't need it. That is so dangerous. It's good to know what you need. It's dangerous not to know what you need. You may die. It's good to regain the senses of need because we all start out with them. We all have senses of need. When we were born as babies... We all had the need to eat, to have our diaper changed. And what did you do? You cried for it. right? You cried for it. You were hungry and you wanted to eat. 
If you didn't know that you needed food, you would not be here. You would be dead. Right? So it is good to learn how to need. Not knowing what you need, dangerous. Not knowing that you need God, dangerous. It's a dangerous way to live. And what keeps so many people from coming to God is that many don't see, many don't feel the need for Him. They don't see that need. And people think that they're fine without Him and they don't realize that without Him, you're actually in hell. That's what hell essentially is. It's a place of absence from the presence of God. It's not until we recognize our need of God that we will open our hearts to the opportunity of receiving Him. We won't go to God until we acknowledge that we need Him. You go to a cardiologist when you know that you have a heart problem. You don't go for the fun of it. And until you see the need of a Savior to rescue you from your sins, you won't go to Jesus. You don't have a need. That's what was wrong with the Pharisees. They couldn't see the need for Jesus. They already had their plan out. You know, we had the religion in the bag. Those are the people of the land. We're, we're good. We're, we're all set. And those sinners over there, they did draw near to Jesus. They did hear what Jesus had to say. They did recognize that they were spiritually bankrupt and they couldn't go to the Heavenly Father who will welcome them with open arms without Him. And here are the Pharisees just like, yeah, we don't need Him. We're good. This young son lost his wealth in verse 14. He lost his freedom in verse 15. He lost his dignity in verse 16. You're like, how did he lose his dignity? Well, for these people hearing this, pigs are unclean to Jews. These are unclean animals to Jews. And here was this young son who was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. You see that? And no longer were the contacts in his iPhone, can he call them and say, like, hey, can you bail me out? Or are you going on his text, you know? You go, come on, please bail me out. I'm, I'm hungry, you know, all this kind of stuff. And this was before AT&T shut off his service. He wasn't getting good reception anyway, so. The road to Jesus is the true road to wealth. It is the true road to freedom. It is the true road to dignity. It's a road where you find forgiveness, peace, grace, mercy, love, hope. Not just temporarily, but everlasting. You can go out looking for anything people will give you, but no one can give you what Jesus can give you. Verses 17 through 20. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Look at verse 17 where he says, I perish here with hunger. You know what? He really didn't have to. He could have eaten the pods that the pigs ate. Right? He didn't have to starve with hunger. Why didn't he eat the pods? Verse 17 again. But when he came to himself. See, he didn't eat them because he came to his senses. He realized something. He realized that if he decided to continue living like that, he'd be stuck in the mud. Get it? Stuck in the mud? Pigs? Anyway. How often do we negatively engage ourselves by enabling ourselves, by enabling others into ignoring God? That we enable that. And we need to point people to God. Not the pods that we can feed them. Right? We need to point people to God. And when we get to a point where we're saying, you know what, enough is enough. We need God. We don't need these pig pods. Right? Stop eating the pig food. Stop enabling yourself by just eating pig food. Your father has something better for you. If you just go back to him, you don't have to keep eating pig food. See, need is a good thing. So is hunger. Hunger is a good thing. Hunger keeps you from being lazy and it keeps you sharp. 
You ever seen an athlete who has lost the hunger to win? I mean, they just kind of coast. They just coast in competition and they're just complacent and they aren't striving for victory anymore. Where are you with your spiritual life? Are you even hungry anymore? Or are you just kind of coasting? It's just kind of whatever. God's there. I'm going to go to church. Are you even hungry for the things of God? Do you have an appetite for those things? Staying on top of your spiritual game? Or, or have you just gotten lazy? Just gotten complacent? You're just content with eating pig food? Have some of you compromised with sin? Sin is pig food. Right? You, you participate in that sin. Your belly gets full. You satisfy your hunger for that moment. But you'll want more. And you'll want more. And the more you fill and the more you hunger and it satisfies you, but you'll just want more. And you won't be able to get enough because that stuff is junk. There's no nutritional value in that stuff. You're always going to be hungry. You're always going to want more of that stuff. There's no sustenance to that. It's just filler. And so you're just going to want more because it feels good. You don't feel good to participate in this stuff. That porn isn't enough. That porn that you're struggling with isn't enough anymore. You have to act upon that lust in more dangerous ways now. Because you've got to fill. You've got to put that pig food in there. That addiction is not enough. You need something stronger that can damage you a little bit more. And you need to fill yourself with that slop. That slop of sin that is making you sick. And is eventually going to kill you. I recognize that there is temporary fulfillment and satisfaction in sin. I recognize that sin can be fun. The writers of Hebrews wrote about this in chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable. But it's also fleeting. Sin gives instant gratification, but it fades. Yet the consequences of it are everlasting without Jesus Christ. If you act out in your lust, there is an immediate feeling of pleasure. But you'll live with the sin you've committed, and the consequences might be far-reaching. The consequences may affect your marriage. They may affect your relationship. They may affect your finances. They may affect your family. If you act out in anger and sin, there's gratification to that. It feels good to exercise that negative power behind your anger and and manipulate people and to control people. But there are bad consequences that are far-reaching that affect you more than you realize. See, all the pleasures of sin, they're temporary, but they are extremely damaging to your future. There is no ultimate positive end to your sin. It's all temporary. You take a look at verse 19 and you compare it to verse 12. And you notice the change of attitude from the young son. Right Back in verse 12, the younger son is saying like, Father, give me the share of property. And so you notice his request, you notice his tone, you notice his attitude there. Now look at verse 19, and you notice that that prideful entitlement, summarized by that phrase, give me, it's changed. It's changed to this humble realization that is summarized by this phrase, treat me. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's come to his senses. How often do people look at God as if He's just this genie existing to grant us our wishes? Thinking that God exists to give us things. Approaching Him with this prideful entitlement and and telling Him, give me. How often do we approach God in humble recognition that we are indeed sinners? And we don't deserve to be given what's His. That we are not entitled to be His Son, but to be treated as a hired servant. And to come to Him humbly and saying, God, treat me. I know exactly who I am. Treat me. Now notice in verse 20, He got up and went to His Father. I find this interesting. He didn't try to get Himself all prim and proper and get everything ready before He went to His Father. He recognized his state, he got up, and then he humbly went to his father. He recognized 
where he was, right? And, and he got up and he humbly went to his father. How many of you think you have to have everything just right before you come to God? Like, oh, I, I need to clean up my act. Um, I, I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing that. I need to do all this. Please stop overanalyzing your relationship with God. Please stop thinking that you have to get all your ducks in a row before you can enter into a relationship with God. Just recognize that you have a personal need for God. You get up and then you humbly go to Him. It's not you. You cannot do anything to earn a better place with God. Now maybe some of you have walked away from church and for some reason you find yourself here and it's not an accident that you're here either. God loves you even though you walked away from Him and His love for you has never faded. It has never changed. You just need to repent. To repent. To stop where you're at. To get up and turn to your Father who created you, who gave you life. Turn to Him and you humbly admit your sins and that you want His forgiveness. You don't have to clean up all your act. Just go to Him. It's your heart that He wants. It's not your actions. It's your heart. When your heart turns to Him, He knows that you are still a long way off. He knows that you have a lot to do. But He sees you with these loving and expectant eyes. He's hoping that you come back and is looking for you even though you're a long way off. He feels compassion for you. The idea here in this word compassion, is to be moved as to one's bowels because the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and the seat of pity. So I liken this compassion to be being so jazzed that you pee in your pants. Like, this is God. Like, He's so going to pee in His pants. He's so happy. And not that God doesn't have bladder control or anything like that. Or bowel, but you get the picture that that of how mind-blowingly happy God is that you are turning your heart towards Him even though you're a long way off that He's going to pee in His pants He's so happy. He doesn't care what anyone thinks about Him. He doesn't care if He looks the fool. He doesn't care. He's just happy you're coming back. He doesn't care about anything. He runs to you. Picture that. He runs to you. He's so pumped that you return. He can't wait. And He runs to you. He embraces you. And this isn't like that, you know, Christian friend side hug kind of hug, right? Like, hi. Like this is the type of hug He doesn't want to let you go. He's like hugging you. He doesn't want to let you go. And He kisses you. And this is not like that uh, European or Latino greeting kiss. Like, mm. like it's not that. This is like that non-stop kissing. Like that, that's this. This is the kind of kissing that I give my babies over and over again because I just love them. I just want to eat their face. See, God isn't thinking about what anyone else thinks. He doesn't care. He'll pee in his pants and kiss you all over. He doesn't care. He, he, he just, you came back. He doesn't care what it looks like. He doesn't care what he looks like. He doesn't care what you look like, even though you smell like a pig and you stink. And man, you stink. But I love you. And you come in. He's just glad you came back. He is ecstatic that you return. See how merciful he is? He's already forgiven you. You just need to accept it. See, our relationship with God is not dependent on how sinful we are. Our relationship with God is on account that He is so gracious and He is so merciful to us. It's not how bad of a child that we have been. It's that He's really that good of a father. You may have strayed from the Father's house, but you were never really that far away from His heart. You're always close to His heart. Verses 21-24. through And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. In verse 21, the younger son starts his speech to his father. Right? He starts his speech, but did you notice he never finished his prepared remarks? 
Right? He doesn't finish verse 19. Did you notice that? He doesn't get to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And then it ends there. He didn't get to finish his rehearsed remarks. And I don't think it's because the father cut him off mid-sentence. I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened in this story is that the son came to realize grace. He came to the understanding of mercy and of love of his father. He came to that realization that my dad is this cool. I don't even have to say that. That there was no way his father was going to treat him as a hired servant because the father doesn't look with expectation for the return of a servant. Fathers don't do that to the servant. They do that for their kids. Right? Fathers don't have that same pee-in-your-pants compassion for a servant. Oh, my servant's coming back. Ooh! You know, They don't do that. This is a son, right? And so he recognizes that. The father doesn't run to a servant. The father doesn't hug them like, oh, I don't want to let you go. The father doesn't all over his servant. This is only done with sons. This is only done with your kids. And I think he recognized that I'm home. I'm home. I'm I'm not a hired servant out there on the pig field anymore. I'm, I'm home. I'm a son. See, servants don't get these expressions of a father's love. And this was further confirmed with the gifts of the best robe, a ring, shoes, and a party. See, servants don't get these gifts to signify a father's love. See, that wealth and that freedom and that dignity, all being restored. It's all being restored. Everything restored. See, God, when you return to Him, He's not going to say, I told you so. We ran off. I told you. Acting stupid and stuff like that. And now you're coming back here with the tail between your legs. It's stupid. God's not going to do that. He's not going to be all passive-aggressive with you. Like, you know, He's not going to do that. And He's not going to ask you about 20 questions about how you mistreated Him. So, so what was going through your head when you um, told me to die? He's not going to do all this stuff. He won't call you stupid or idiot or those other names that you've been called by those that you so wanted to be loved by and trusted by. He won't tell you to clean up your act before you enter the house. Before you get into that house, get that pig stuff off. You stink. Don't you dare step in my house. Clean yourself up and get in here. See, God's not like that. And He's not going to be ashamed of you. And He's not going to be saying like, did Mr. and Mrs. Smith see you come up here? I don't want anyone to know that you're back. Just, you know, just, just go over here. Do your friends know you're back? Because I, I, I don't want anyone to know that you're here. See, this, this is not God. When you come back, the best robe will be quickly put around you, signifying this one's mine. This robe, woof. This kid's mine. I know he stinks, but he's mine. And the ring will go on your hand and the shoes on your feet. A party is going to be thrown on your honor. He's going to announce to everybody, you're back. Things you don't deserve will be given to you. And all you have to do is acknowledge that you are sinful and that you couldn't bail yourself out. That you actually have a need. That that hunger that you have, you recognize that, you know, I'm tired of eating pig slop. I don't want to eat that junk. I want the real spiritual food from God. You go humbly to God and you will find grace. You will find His mercy. How can anyone turn their back on such a loving God? It's because you you don't have a need and you aren't hungry because you're filled with pig slop. How can we turn our back on Jesus who, who came to seek and save the lost? Go to Him. And you know what? You can go as you are. You don't have to change a thing. You can go all stinky. You, didn't, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to get all your ducks in a row. Go as you are. But you got to get up and you got to go now. Don't make any excuses. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. 
Lord, your mercy, your grace is so vast. And your kindness leads us to repentance, Lord. The Father's kindness, knowing that his son could come back. And Lord, I pray for anyone who has strayed away from you, Lord, that they recognize the amount of love that you have for them, that it's no accident that they are here. It's no accident that they've heard your stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and lost sons. Lord, may we not take your instruction lightly from your word. May your spirit speak to the hearts and minds of the people here. In Jesus' name, amen.